Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois at scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have for them food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Praise God. Yes, thanks be to God that he has given us his revealed word so that we truly know who we are and what he has purposed us for. My name is Rob Spikester. I am the pastor of discipleship in Davenport, Davenport Sacred City, and it's my privilege to be here today. I'm glad to be able to give an opportunity for your pastor, Sam, to get a rest this past week. He didn't have to take a prepare, and he could get a little more rest and rest this morning, and so it is, uh, it's always a privilege for me to be able to do that for him, but also a privilege for me to preach the Word of God, and so uh, I enjoy that, and I pray that... Uh, we will have joy as a result of his word. Let's pray and ask for that. Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Um, we are broken people. We do not think the way you think, and um, your ways are not our ways. We know that. We admit that. We uh, declare that right now. And so, Father, if you are going to do a work, if you are going to help us to understand your thoughts and your ways, you're, you are going to have to do a work in our hearts and our lives through your spirit, and so we depend upon you. Father, you have this crazy way of working, and that is you love to glorify yourself by being everything for us, by being sufficient for us, by actually answering our prayers, and by coming through your Holy Spirit to show us how much we need you, and then to be that for us. So... Thank you, pray that you'd work in each of our hearts today, and we will give you the praise and glory for it. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, what I want you to do this morning is, I want you to imagine, if you will, you are a character in a Hallmark movie. It's kind of a secret uh, desire I know you all have, so let's do it this morning. You are poor. You're barely living paycheck to paycheck. That is, some months you're just making enough to pay for your rent in your run-down one-room apartment, keeping the lights on and eating mac and cheese with hot dogs. In other months, not so much. But unbeknownst to you, there's another character who is looking, looking for you and this character serves the king and has been called to search for you, for you. See, there was a separation that occurred sometime in your family's past before you were born. And it wasn't until recently that the royal records revealed your family line. So you were born into poverty, raised in poverty, now living in poverty, all the while you actually had a royal status 
and were to have a royal purpose. Well, the movie gets to be really interesting when finally the royal servant finds you and he observes your life. He observes your impoverished actions that are fueled by an impoverished attitude that assumes there is little resource for change and thus little hope for your life to be any different. And then in a dramatic moment, the royal servant knocks, your, knocks on your apartment door. You cautiously open it to the extent that the security door lock chain allows. And through the crack you ask, can I help you? The royal servant introduces himself and says, I have a message from your king. You immediately question, what king? Who are you? What do you really want? You place your hand on the deadbolt, ready to shut the door and turn the deadbolt in one quick motion. When the royal servant replies, your father, the king, he has been searching for you. You are royalty. Please, let me explain. See, that's where we are in this message in Genesis chapter one, our creator king has a message. His servant Moses, the writer of Genesis, gives us this simple message. All human beings are created with royal status for royal purposes. All human beings are created with royal status for royal purposes. Well, this morning what I want to do is I want to answer four what questions that comes out of this passage, particularly Genesis 26, 27, and 28. And it's these four questions. The first, what is our royal status? Secondly, what is our royal purpose? Then thirdly, what happened to our status and our purpose? And then finally, what must we do with the king's message? But before we get into the questions, we can immediately see there's something special about this particular passage that we had read for us this morning in comparison to the rest of Genesis chapter 1. See, there are a number of differences between the creation story or the created order before this and then when we come to this, the creation of humanity. But let me just point out too, first, first it's this, is that we hear the creator's voice there in verse 26, but then we hear a narrator's voice voice, repeating what the creator had stated. And in verse 27, that's where we have that narrator's voice. He's confirming the fulfillment of what the creator had just said. Then secondly, in the earlier accounts of God's creation, everything is created with a third person. Uh, for instance, verse 14 it starts off this way, it says, let there be. But when it comes to humanity, when the royal messenger brings the message, verse 26, the message is a more personal first-person account. Let us make. At the call into being of all the other living beings, God simply spoke and in his speaking, life was just brought into existence, but not with humanity. Before creating humanity, he actually confers with himself. And in that council, he decided to make man in his image and likeness. And it is as if God wants us to know there's something extremely important about you, about humanity. So important that he convenes a conference and he has this conference and minutes are taken and then they're declared to us. How, how the message is given portrays humanity as a special creature marked off from the rest of creation 
And yet the message seems to say something about the intent, the intent on showing that humanity is like God as well in some way. And so we peer through the crack of the door. And we cautiously listen to the royal messenger and ask, what is our royal status? What is our royal status as human beings? I'm going to answer the the question first and then to defend the answer from the text. So the answer to the question, what is our royal status, is this. God created man, that is humanity, to be his representative regent in his creation. God created man, humanity, to be his representative regent in his creation. Representative regent. His regent. That is, he's, humanity is part of the royal family. See, ancient rulers often set up images of themselves, of the, of the nations, or, or of, the, of their, their territory, their dominion. And so they couldn't be there. They couldn't physically be everywhere in their dominion. So they would set up, they would set up these images. And it, it's not so ancient. See, back in 2004, I had the opportunity to, be, to travel to the Ukraine. I went to the cities of Nippur. And in those two cities, much like our cities, there's a river that's between there, the Nippur River. In that city, there's a statue still standing. It's standing of linen. It was a reminder in those Soviet days, in those Soviet days, that Lenin was the ruler of the Ukraine. And that that rule, that city was to reflect that rule. And so we go to our passage here in verse 26, and we read these words, we hear these words. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, there's just two things I want to note here, what we read here. First, there is a correspondence between God and man. And that is expressed in two words, image and likeness. And these two words serve to amplify and support each other. They serve to state that humanity is not an unsuccessful portrait or somewhat similar, but no, that he is a perfect and totally corresponding image of God in his pre-fallen state. And what is astonishing here is that man who stands infinitely far beneath God nevertheless corresponds to him and is related to him as his image bearer. That's us. We are regents. Thus, it's not surprising when we hear in verse 26, let them have dominion. When we think of kings, we think of dominions, and so the earth is the creator king's dominion, and he is calling us to have dominion over his realm. We are his regents. We are his representatives. His representatives. And so, like an ambassador from a foreign country, the ambassador represents the king's authority. So, male and female are created to represent the authority of the creator king, God himself. Humanity was created to advance the interests of God, to advance his kingdom and his values. The male and female were created so that when people encounter them as ambassadors, they encounter the creator king. They hear his words. They experience his love. Humanity was created to be God's representative. Regent. Representative. Well, this is only possible if we are created in his image. 
So the narrator's voice in verse 27 makes that clear. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Being created in God's image means that there's something special about our being. There's there's something special about our structure. And as a result then, our ability or our function. Something special about us. Now think about how we are identified. We are human beings. God has created something special about our being. The first thing to note is that we are spiritual. We're we're spiritual beings. And and so what we read in chapter 2, God created Adam unlike the animals. Verse 7 in chapter 2 says, he breathed into his nostrils, Adam's nostrils, the breath of life. And in a sense, this holds true for all of humanity. For according to Ecclesiastes 12, 7, God gives every man his, his or her spirit, his or her spirit. Or according to Zechariah 12, 1, he forms the spirit of man or woman within him or her. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 139, we remember these words, verses 13 through 16, which says this, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your books were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. We are spiritual. And thus we can know God. You can know God. The father of all spirits, as he's identified in Hebrews 12, 9. We're also moral beings. God created humanity with intellectual and rational powers for the purpose to distinguish from right from wrong. Original man and woman had all the powers necessary to observe the created order around them and to hear and take in all the commands and the laws of the creator king that he had provided. And so we were not created, uh, we were not created through the intellectual and rational powers to determine what is right and wrong. We were only created in such a way that we could distinguish what is right and wrong as revealed by God. For instance, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, this is what he said to them. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We're also, besides moral beings, we're also volitional beings. That is, we have wills. We can make decisions. And also, we are responsible beings. And that is that related to our wills or volitional beings is our ability to respond to God and to respond to others. We're also worshiping beings. There is this awareness of some greater good, ultimate good, so that in some man made in the image of God has all of the capacities to function in his or her royal status with a royal purpose. <laughs> but the grandeur of being human is even greater than just that structure. The grandeur of being human is then how we can function being created in his image Abilities, 
The abilities of those who are created in the image of the creator king. See, being created in the image of God gives us remarkable abilities. And as we see, we see this best in Jesus Christ, who is the perfect image of God. Colossians 1.15, of which we confessed earlier, professed earlier. He is, it says there, he is the image of the invisible God. And then a few verses later, verse 19, it says, For in him all the fullness of God dwells. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. So like the rays of the sun in our solar system, so Jesus is to us spiritually. We don't separate out and say the rays of the sun are different than that orb that is out there in our solar system. But no, rather it is the same. And so Jesus is like that. The, the impact of who God is is found in Jesus. He is God. And like the stamp and the impression of the stamp, so is Jesus an exact imprint of God. He is the perfect image of God to humanity. And it is in his coming that he shows us the glory of being made in the image of God, the privilege, the opportunities that are ours in the image, being made in the image of God. See, while the characteristics of our being is necessary, being spiritual and moral and volitional and responsible and worshipful, what we do with those characteristics is what sets us apart. And Jesus shows us it's central to being in the image of God is love. The ability to be singular focused on the love of God. Because we are made in the image of God, we can love God. Jesus' life was wholly directed toward God in love. The perfect image bearer, the perfect one that came to image forth the Father. At the beginning of his public ministry, remember what happened there. Though tempted like none other by the devil, Jesus resisted temptation by a consuming love of God. He often spent whole nights in prayer, energized by a love of God. He once said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And at the end of his earthly life, when he was facing unimaginable suffering, just in the contemplation of what was going to happen to him on the cross, he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He was so taken by the love of the Father that not even the sufferings of the cross could sway him from obeying the Father. One of the most frustrating realities of my life is how easily I'm distracted from the love of God. How quickly my affections are divided from him. Oh, Jesus was a true human being. He was focused. Being made in the image of God gave him and gives us the ability to be singularly focused on the love of God. Secondly, the grandeur of being made in the image of God is that we have the ability to love others rightly. We have the ability to love others rightly. When people came to him in need, whether for healing or food or forgiveness, he was ready to help them. But not all of them. He, he knew how to love them rightly. And so you remember the story of the, of the paralytic, the, the, the four individuals come to find Jesus and they can't get into the, in, into the doors. And so what do they do? They go to the ceiling. They, t- they take apart the roof. They lower this paralytic down. And so Jesus sees him, this paralytic right there. And he, sa- you know, he, he says, your sins are forgiven. And I'm sure the paralytic is going, well, kind of would like to walk. (laughs) No, he gave him what he really needed, forgiveness of sins. But of course, as he's looking at the crowd and perhaps even looking at this man who is questioning whether or not he has that power, Jesus says, "So, so that you will know that I have the power to forgive sins, get up and walk. 
He knew how to love people rightly. He set aside his own needs to minister to a Samaritan woman who was deeply broken. To Zacchaeus, the diminutive tax collector, a traitor to his own people, he said, the son of man came to seek and save what was lost. Once Jesus indicated that what is the greatest love is that one can show to another, he said, greater love has no one this than he laid down his life for his friends. And this is the kind of love Jesus revealed. He laid down his life for his friends. Being made in the image of God is the ability to love rightly. Thirdly, the ability to love nature properly as a resource to love God and people. See, he revealed his ability to rule so that with a word of command, Jesus silenced a storm on the Sea of Galilee that a second before was threatening to actually sink the boat that he was in. At another time, he shockingly commanded molecules of water to support his weight, and he walked on that water, creating a hard surface. He surprised Peter, John, and James with a catch of fish that nearly tore their nets. (laughs) And he multiplied loaves and changed water into wine, and the list goes on in how Jesus viewed nature, not as something to worship, but rather something to use as a resource, resource for the enjoyment of the kingdom of God. Being made in the image of God is the ability to love nature properly. Which really brings us to our second question. If we have such royal status because we are made in the image of God, which gives us the ability to love God and to love others and to love nature around us properly, what is our royal purpose? Well, our royal purpose can be found there in verse 28. And God blessed them. Let me just stop there. The blessing here is first the giving of purpose. There is not a single person person in this room who hasn't thought, what's my purpose? Why am I here? So we seek out purpose, and when people don't have a purpose, they languish, or they waste away, or when their purpose is diminished, their lives are diminished. So that if one's purpose is simply to be entertained by the next 10 seconds of videos, one's life has about a 10 second impact. No, oh no. Our royal purpose is to reflect the glorious nature of the creator king to the world. When one looks at a human being, one is to see in him or her a certain reflection of the God of glory. No higher honor could have been given to man. It is a privilege to be made in the image of God. Which is why the second command of the Ten Commandments reads this. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. See, God does not want us to make an image of him because he has already created a living, walking, and talking image of himself in humanity. It's like God saying, if you want to see what I'm like, look at my most distinguished creation. Man. Our royal purpose is to reflect the glorious nature of the creator king to the world. So how do we do this? Well, look back at verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So first, we are to be relationally interdependent for fruitfulness. 
Relationally interdependent for fruitfulness. See, we hear these words, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. How does that happen? Well, verse 27, narrator deems it necessary to say, male and female, he created them. See, unlike the creation of the fish or the birds or the animals, here gender is inserted as something significant for us to understand when it comes to the image of God. God created humanity, the image bearers, to be male and female to point us back to the original God. Gender matters because to be human is to be interdependent upon one another just as the three persons are interdependent with one another. The human person is not an isolated human being. We complete one another. But it's more than companionship. Gender is important because the intention of that interdependence is a fruitfulness. Fruitfulness requires a male and a female. See, arguments for homosexuality as a lawful relationship before the face of God are typically argued back to the good and glory of man. So you'll hear arguments like this. They are a loving couple, or they are happy, and now they can express their same-sex desires. So again, this goes back to the good and glory of man. This is in contrast to the message which reveals that we argue back to a much higher good and a much higher glory, and that is the good and glory of God. But this is what he has created us for. So God created man, male and female, to point us back to the creator who has a plurality in persons that extends beyond mere companionship, but in terms of fruitfulness. In the interdependent relationship between the persons of the Trinity, there is always a God-glorifying fruitfulness that results. And so our royal status is to reflect the same. We are to be fruitful. And then secondly, we are to reflect our creator king by developing a God-glorifying culture. A God-glorifying culture. That means humanity is given a task to develop all the potentialities that's found in nature. The word subdue there in verse 28 means to bring under control. That is, it is to discover and cultivate all of the resources that God has coded into creation for its ultimate purpose to reflect the glory of God. We will find in chapter 2 where Adam is given the task to work and to keep the Garden of Eden. Work literally means to serve, and keep literally means to guard. And so we are called, as human beings, to serve and guard God's creation in ways that uses the resources for the good of humanity and the glory of God. Being created in the image of God is a blessing, for it has given each one of us purposes. To reflect his glory, to reflect his glorious nature through our specific callings. And so you have a man who was born 20, I don't know, Trent, 28 years ago? I don't think it's 28. Okay, 35. God has coded into our world a way that mathematics works. And mathematics works in such a way that music is performed. And music is performed by God calling certain people to love math. I don't know if Trent loves math, but Trent knows how math works musically. And he creates a song. This is what it means to be created in the image of God. It is to take the very things that God has coded within our creation and to form it in such a way that it glorifies God. And so each one of us here have been born at some time. I know this. For a particular calling, you are unrepeatable as a human being. Created in the image of God 
with a royal status for a royal purpose to work out the callings that God has within your life. You all have particular personalities, particular desires, particular skills, particular gifts that God has given to you. And God says, it is yours for my glory. Work it out. Back to our Hallmark movie. We find ourselves standing there, still a little uncertain, cynical, safety chain on the door of our life. And the royal servant has shared the king's message. You have a royal status and a royal purpose. And so you ask through the gap of unbelief the third question. What happened? How did I lose these things? What happened to our royal purpose, our royal status and purpose? Well, the royal servant continues. Within the royal purpose, where you were given a rich task that was going to take centuries to accomplish, we were placed into a garden, but on the borders of this little garden was the wildness of creation, filled with potential but in need of humanity to work it and to keep it. See, there's a big difference and a wide separation between condition and destination. And that is what Adam and Eve, that's what they found themselves. The nature of man, the essence of his being, being made in the image of God, had to come to a richer and fuller unfolding of its meaning by means of striving towards its destination. Man was created in the image of God, but he was not yet a finished product in Adam and Eve. He still needed to grow and to be tested God wished to determine whether man would be obedient to him freely and voluntarily in the face of an actual possibility of disobedience. Man had the ability not to sin at this point. Chapter 2, verse 27, 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat, it, eat of it, you shall surely die. And they disobeyed the command. But the image of God was not destroyed. See, to be made in the image of God is the essence of our being. They're still human beings. Adam and Eve. The image of God was not destroyed, but it was distorted. John Calvin, when writing on the fallen image of God, he describes the image as deformed, impaired, mutilated, maimed, disease-ridden, and disfigured. And so no wonder we are looking from the inside of our impoverished life out to the royal messenger and we're a bit cynical to the message. See, the image of God was seriously distorted, and yet we know the image still exists in fallen humanity because later in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, when capital punishment is established by God, he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Or Psalm 8, of which we heard earlier, we read of the glory of man, and it's written in the fallen humanity. Or James 3, we were reminded of the restless evil, the full of deadly poison that our tongues are. But verse 9 says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So fallen humanity still bears the image of God although it is seriously distorted. See, while we, we still retain the unique capacity of our being, we're still human beings, 
We are still spiritual and moral and volitional and responsible and worshipful beings. It is what we do with those features of our humanity, the structural features of our humanity. This is where the distortion is clearly seen. And it's seen in our love. Oh yeah, we still love. But instead of loving God, we love the gifts of God. Romans 1, for example. Romans 1, beginning at verse 20, says this. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Huh. Reflecting moral man, mortal man, and birds and animals and creeping things. And instead of loving others, we love ourselves manipulating others as tools for our selfish purposes, indifferent to their condition. And if they cannot be manipulated, we just alienate ourselves from them. And instead of loving God and others, we exploit nature for our own selfish purposes. See, the very greatest greatness of our sin consists in the fact that we are still made in the image of God. We are image bearers of him, and we use that glory, that gift, for ourselves. And the result is an impoverished soul. Think of our teens. They are bombarded with a message that they are no more than their sexual self, and so they are drawn into themselves. College students are counseled to find their identity in their own personal success and satisfaction curved in on themselves. Singles are called to live life unhinged from commitments, a universe of one. Young marrieds are being told to constantly evaluate whether or not they are individuals, that as individuals they're getting everything they want from their partner. The center of the world is self. Parents are seeking their identity, and the identity of the success of their children, life orbiting around themselves. Empty nesters are chasing a dream of soaking in experiences. Self. Retirees are ordering the day around their comforts, and their lives are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. See, God has never made a soul so small that this world would ever satisfy. We're made for something much bigger and better than self. God has made us for himself. Question four. What must we do with this message? Believe. Believe the message. Believe the good news. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. You recognize that. What is the purpose? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Royal status, royal purposes. This is why he's calling you. This is why he's called you. He's called you to conform you back into the image of his son. 
See, we've already seen that Jesus Christ is the perfect image of God. And so his purpose for those in poverty is to be restored to their full status of royalty. But more than just a full status of royalty, it is to gain, it is to gain a life that lives out God's given purpose to reflect his glorious nature. And so we go to Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 10. So he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desires and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He's calling us back. He's knocking on our door. And he's saying, you can not only know your status, you can know your purpose. This is why I've called you. He's calling us to our royal purpose. And it begins with redemption begins with redemption. Jesus was in the same status as Adam and Eve, and that is there was a condition and a destination in his life. He was born into this world. God was born into this world. So it's the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. He's born into this world. That is the condition he is born into, but there is a destination, and that destination is a cross. And so there's another garden that we read earlier about. Not only did Adam and Eve were they found in the garden, but he also was found in the garden. And he is at that moment, and when there's, he's anticipating insufferable, the, 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 the insufferable pain of the cross and of the receiving of the wrath of God. And he says, my God, if there's any way, any way I can get around this, if there's anything else, I would rather go that way, but not my will, your will. Tempted. but succeeded, obeyed, followed the will of the Father to the cross. And so he lived the life we should have lived as the perfect image bearer and took our failures as image bearers and died, received the wrath of God. And so... Are you ready to take the safety chain off the door of your life? Open it. Risk. Because the royal messenger wants you to know something else. There is a royal robe of Christ's righteousness, his perfect obedience that he wants to put on you that he wants to clothe you with. Will you do that today? Will you believe? Believer, the message is for us as well. See, there's a funny thing we do. So often we run back to our hovel of a life and the messenger is reminding us again of our royal status and our royal purpose, a purpose that is energized not by the strength of our will, but by the strength of his will. See, the reason you ought to respond to this message, believer or unbeliever today, those who are regenerate, those who are not regenerate yet, the reason you ought to respond and living in your impoverished state in your little one-room apartment of a life is the confidence that you can have to open the door to live the royal life that God has called you into. The confidence you can have is his resurrection. See, in Romans chapter 6, and this will be the last passage I will turn to, Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 5, this is what we read. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In other words, if we will simply open the door again, believer, open the door for the first time, unbeliever. If we will do that, we will join him in his death. And we know that, verse, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never to die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under the law, but under grace. And so... He calls us out of our little selves and says, oh, you have much greater purpose. You have a purpose to make much of me. And my resurrection power will make it happen. And so we do the same. We confess and repent of all our little ways and ask God, please, make it happen. Father, we thank you for the royal status that you have given to us. We confess we live impoverished lives. We do not live a royal life that you were calling us to. The Father, we are distracted. Our minds are divided. Our hearts are divided. But how we thank you for Jesus Christ, who was always one, one purpose, one love, lived that life that we should have, died the death that we should have received, rose again to share a message. And so, Father, our prayer today is that you would move, open the doors of our lives, cause us to step through, trust you, walk out the royal purpose you have for each person here. So Father, please work, we pray. We thank you, Father, that you have never broken your covenants. Father, we have. And so we're thankful that as we come to this covenant renewals part of our service, we would pray, Father, we thank you, Father, for your son who gave his body. So we take this bread, remaining reminded he gave his body for the forgiveness of our sins. We take this cup to be reminded that he shed the blood of his blood for the forgiveness of our sins to cause us to enter into this new covenant. And we renew ourselves to you again. We love you and thank you for it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.